All right, all right, all right. Coming to you another episode of Peace, Love, and Hot Sauce. This week, the quarantine editions with Mr. Mark Teleska. We got a lot on the plate today, so let's do this. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome out to another quarantine edition of Peace, Love, and Hot Sauce. And on the phone with me today is Mr. Mark Teleska. How are you doing, buddy? Feeling good. You feeling good? You feeling all right? Feeling all right, and I am feeling a little, uh, a little claustrophobic here in my house. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I've been in them for a long time, like like a lot of other people. Right. Um, so let's start off at the beginning. Um, how old were you when music came into your life, and where did you grow up? Well, um, I, you know, I was born in Brooklyn, and I did some growing up in Queens, and then um, the family. The family all moved us out to, uh, the family moved us all out to Long Island um, when, I was a, when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, and I went, to, I went into public school and uh, when I was like in maybe the fifth grade or fourth or fifth grade, um, we uh, got introduced to um, band instruments. Um, you know, to, to be in like the, uh, the the grammar school band, you know, that's when everybody got introduced. Some kids were going into athletics, some kids were going into art, some kids were going into, you know, you know, music. You know, back then, growing up, being in, in school in the 19, you know, 1960s, early 1970s, there were tons and tons and tons of programs. Uh, inside public schools, right? You know that, yeah, yeah. And you know, you can, you know, tons and tons of different clubs, and and schools were big. You know, the schools were big, man. I went to school; there was like twelve hundred kids. My brain, you know, that was crazy. But there were cities. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I introduced to uh, you know. Uh, music at pretty much at that, at that age, and then I was uh, made to play the trumpet. My, my parents made me play the trumpet because I had an uncle who played the trumpet. Wow! Do you still and play the trumpet? It, he was. He was well, me. Yeah. I really cared. I never really cared for it. Man. I never really cared for the trumpet. Hmm. But um, you know, back then. Nobody asked the kids what they wanted to do. Everybody just do what they were told. You know what I mean? Nobody asked me, hey, what do you want to do? Or what's your opinion on this? Or, you know, everybody, everybody, I don't know. That was my bringing up. We all just did what we were told. We were told, but we wanted to ask what we would like to do. What, uh, how old were you when you picked up the bass? I don't know if people know this, but the, but the, uh, you're an amazing bass player. How, how old were you when you picked that up? I didn't. I didn't start playing 
in bass until I was probably about 24 years old, 20, 23 years old. What? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I just wanted to be in a band. And, um, you know, there were no lessons. Uh, you know, my, my, you know, we were kind of broke. You know, there was, we didn't, you know, mom and dad didn't pay for any kind of music lessons or anything like that, you know, growing up. I just got everything, whatever I got, I got for free, you know, and, and whatever education I got. And uh, the kids in the neighborhood were starting a band. And, um, you know, and, and there was a, a old Hofner bass. I didn't think it was a Hofner. It was a Hofner-style bass uh, laying around because everybody back then was a, was a huge Beatles fan. And... Um, there was no, no 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 kids in the neighborhood who could who could play. So um, I played this borrowed bass in a huge in, in in like this cover local neighborhood band. That was pretty much my introduction to it. And I was like, oh, this is cool, you know. And that's that's how that all got started. So what what yeah. what did you do between between when you were learning the trumpet and 23, 24, when you picked up the bass, what did you do between those years? Well, nothing, really. I delivered furniture. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, I had a guitar, six-string guitar, and I, I strummed it in, like, this church group that I was kind of part of. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of, you know, yeah, I wasn't really doing much of anything. I... I was told I wasn't college material, so I never bothered to go at that point in my life. I went later in my life, I went back to college to get my degrees. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I just kind of like, you know, delivered furniture and, uh, you know, the work, uh, you know, in a, I washed the dishes. I did, you know, shit like that. Just, you know, kind of like, you know, lost soul kind of guy. Didn't know what he was going to do, looking for a direction. And then when I found the bass, that's really when things started to, you know, I went up with, with some direction in my life. Who, at uh, least for, for a short period of time. Who did, who, uh, who, whose bass playing did you look up to at the initial uh, start? Well, at the initial start, I started learning. <coughs> I started learning bass lines from, um, uh, because these guys played so many Beatles, I started doing, um, you know, like Paul McCartney bass lines. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, po you know, popular things of the day that I could handle. Uh, you know, the Allman Brothers stuff, it was a little bit, at the time, was a little bit too complex for me. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. Um, so, but... Um, you know, all that, you know, you know, I saw her standing bears and I want to hold your hands and all those kind of like pop tunes that had like a, a little blues, a little 50s stuff in it. I was able to, uh, I was able to, you know, grab. So that was, uh, that was pretty much where I, where I really started. And then I just started getting into, you know, groove guys, you know, I started, you know, listening to guys like, you know, you know, James Brown. Right. You know? Yeah. 
James Jameson, and, and, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and even the James Jameson stuff was like, at this point in my life, it was like way beyond, way beyond me. I mean, I heard Jocko's record. Yeah, I couldn't even. I, I, I had in 1976 he put out, you know, his, his solo record. Yeah, I couldn't even like grasp it. It was just like a foreign <laughs> language from outer space for me at the time. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> in fact, I was listening to it earlier today because I I, I have a, a a studio in my house. It's it's really more of a rehearsal studio and a hang place than a recording studio. But I have an old five. I have an old five-disc uh, CD changer in there that I, I keep it pretty much loaded with with jazz, and I have guys in there like Mingus and, and um, Horace Silver, and jo- the Jocko uh, Pistorius record is uh, is in there too. So actually, I just kind of like put that on. It's all instrumentals in there. So when I want to come up and veg uh, <clears throat> out, I just put that kind of stuff on. When um, did you just listening to it before you called? Did you um, start singing at the same time that you picked up the bass, or did that come later in your life? Yeah, yeah, I kind of started singing a little bit. You know, I never had a singing routine or anything like that. I just do what I do. Yeah, no. Well, it's uh, yeah. So I just started singing um, and pushing my way through songs and trying to sing harmonies. And it was pretty rough in the beginning, believe me. Well, it's hard singing anyways and just put uh, the bass on top of that because the bass is a really important instrument and then, you you know, you sing and you play bass, so that's... <laughs> I commend you for that because that's really hard. Well, you know, it's not like anything else. You, you know, you have to learn one thing. First of all, you know, you can only think of one thought at a time. That's just the way the mind works. You can't think of two things at the same time. So one of those things has to become automatic. You can't think about your bass line and singing the song and the lyrics of the song and the chord change. You can't think of all these things at the same time. So you got to learn something that's just sort of automatic. So depending on the song, sometimes it was the lyric. I just learned the lyric, learned the lyric, and just kept singing it over and over and listening and listening and listening until I got it. And then I could sing the song and concentrate on the bass. So one of those, or I did it opposite. I would just learn the bass line, learn the bass line, learn the bass line, and then, and then learn the vocal. Because, you know, you, you can't really think of two things at the same time, you know? Yeah. So, um, but nowadays, you know, nowadays, you know, I've been doing it so long that, uh, you know, it just sort of, I just sort of do it. You know what I mean? I don't have to think about it, but it, but in the beginning, it's something something that had to be practiced for sure. All right, so around twenty three, twenty four, you did some traveling. Yeah, I did a uh, well. Yeah, I did some traveling. Probably it was closer to twenty five, actually. Um, you know, the neighborhood band was kind of a fun thing, but you know, you know, I was getting older, and um, you know, people they were already off to college, and people were like, you know, there was just kind of this mindset where you have to do something else because this is not a proper living, this is not the proper way to behave as an adult, <laughs> thinking you could be in a rock band. 
Yeah, shame on you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, how dare you? How dare you? You know, you know, we're all taught, you know, and, and I don't know about you growing up, but I, I grew up in a, in a pretty much in a suburb and, um, you know, I didn't really have any mentors or I, I, I didn't have any real heroes or anything like that, people that I could look up to. So the guys that I was looking up to was like, you know, guys like Keith Richards, probably not the best choice of... Uh... <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, you know, that's what, that's, uh, that's what was happening. So... Uh, the guy, everybody was moving on, and and people were getting married. Some of them were starting to have kids. You know, it was it was crazy, and and I still felt like a kid. You know, I still felt I didn't want all this shit to change. I was kind of having a good time. You know, and um, there used to be these um, newspapers that would just for the Long Island club scene and the Long Island club scene back in the early eighties and late seventies and early eighties was massively huge. I mean, you could be in a cover band, and no matter, you know, where you play, I mean, a slow night was like three, four hundred people. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was crazy. It was Tuesday nights, first of all, the drinking age was 18. Yeah. So anybody with a decent fake ID, you know, there were no pictures on on IDs, you know? Oh. You'd show up, and, and you'd borrow your friend's ID, and it would say, you know, whatever, 5A uh, brown... Hey, with brown eyes, the different guys. You know? Wow! So any anybody with with a fake ID um, could get in at 15, 16, you know, seventeen. You know, so the places were always jammed, always, always jammed. And um, well, I lost my train of thought. What was I, I going to say? What were we talking about? About Long Island and some flash, touring days. Keith Richards. Maybe that's the Keith Richards influence. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, oh yeah. So, so, so uh, you know, people were moving on, and they had these newspapers out there where all the clubs and the listings and all the bands, and in the back was a classified, you know, musicians wanted, you know, and then you know, guys that are available, and people were hooking up. So I hook up with these guys, and um, you know, uh, we start heading out. Uh, we're getting these residency gigs to uh, Puerto Rico, St. <laughs> Thomas, St. John, St. Croix. And um, at this point, I, I, I think MTV was just about getting getting cooking. It was 86 at this point or oh. something like that, where we would go down to these uh, islands. And I'll tell you how long ago it was. MTV wasn't even accessible in these uh, Caribbean islands at oh. the time. Uh, and they used to mail these VHS tapes with like four or five different rock songs, rock videos. One, you know, it was like ACDC and White Snake, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, we would play those songs off of those videos. And, uh, you know, we were a four-piece band, you know, cool-looking guys from Queens with, you know, Hamer guitars, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and uh, we did that, and, and uh, I did that for like probably from like 1984, 85 till about 1990, 91. What? Um, and then it just it just got crazier and crazier and crazier. 
what brought you down to Florida and what also prompted you to um, delve into the history and uh, the blues genre and playing it? Oh, all right. Well, I didn't get into the blues till I was in my 30s, actually. Um, huh. What happened was that band had broken up like most do, and um, I really needed to do something. So the very long story short was uh, after that whole gig was over, I wound up uh, pretty much penniless, and I really needed to do something. And uh, I went back to school. I, w I went to college, and um, I graduated, and I did, like, you know, four years college, and I went for mortuary science and got a degree and became a funeral director. And then I worked, I worked from, you know, down in that field in New York for, you know, quite a few years, and it kind of sucked because, you know, it was the height of all the AIDS. Oh, my um, stuff God. going on, and it was, it was just, I was in, I was, I worked in the village for a while, Greenwich Village, and it, it was really kind of a tough gig. So anyway, um, you know, the corporate, corporate America came in and started buying up all these funeral homes, and, and I lost my job. And, you know, and, and I really wasn't happy doing it. It was too many hours. I wasn't really happy with the work. Well, even yeah. Even it was kind of meaningful work, <laughs> you know. But I really needed, I needed to hit a reset button, you know. So I, 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 I found myself coming down to Florida, you know, um, every vacation that I had gotten. Even if it was like just a three or four day weekend, I, I, would, I would, you know, buy a ticket and just come on down because... One by one, friends were coming down, family members were coming down, huh. and then uh, I lost my job. It just kind of got, uh, they just did a downsizing thing, and uh, I picked up another job, and, I, and that really sucked, and then I just decided to throw in the towel and come down to Florida, and then when I came down to Florida, uh, I, that's when I had gotten the gig at the Bamboo Room. And it was me and this guy, Keith Brown. Do you remember Keith Brown? Keith Brown. I'm horrible with names. Well, he was a, uh, he was a, like the house musician over, over at, uh, the Bamboo Room. And Bamboo Room was new. And, uh, it was an acoustic band. He played acoustic guitar. And then he started introducing me to all kinds of stuff. I played upright bass in that I remember, band, yep, I, I remember. Upright. Yep. And Jason Ritchie was the harmonica player. Huh. Funny. So it was me, Keith, me, Keith, and Jason, and um, it was a just great, organic, cool, cool band. And that's really when I started getting in, in, introduced to the blues because all of a sudden we're playing, you know, Stun House and Blind Lemon Jefferson, Skip James, Furry Lewis, uh, uh, stuff, uh, Willie McTell, uh, you know, and the, and the list just keeps going on and on and on. And, and, you know, Mississippi Fred McDowell, I still do some of his stuff. I mean, it was just really, really great music. Guys I never heard of before. And I'm, I'm like in my 30s, you know? And then I went, oh, man. And then I just started delving into, into the whole blues thing. And I, and I really never left. You know, I really never left. That was a good time um, back then when the Bamboo Room was new and... Everything oh, was, was new great. down here. And I worked four nights a week. It was a dream job. <laughs> I was getting paid well. You know, every, it was great. It was great. It was just a, it was a wonderful time. You know, yeah. and that lasted a couple of years. Yeah. You know? 
would but, you, you know, of course, you know, life moves on. What um, would you care to share any interesting funeral director stories? It's okay if you don't want to. No, well, it's fine, you know. I yeah, I mean, um, I'll tell you an interesting funeral director story. The, the, <laughs> the story goes like this: I didn't really like dig doing it. Moved down to Florida. Know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then um, I met Karen, and we, uh, you know, we had uh, Mariah. You know, I adopted Mariah. Mariah was uh, four years old hmm. when Karen and I hooked up, and uh, you know, we uh, wound up, uh, you know, wanting to buy a house. We lived together for a little while, and then we wanted to buy a house. We couldn't get a mortgage, so I, I uh, she was bartending, and I was just kind of doing gigs. Um, so I just decided I was going to, uh, you know, go back into the funeral directing for just a short period of time, just, you know, just to be able to qualify for a mortgage. I couldn't get a loan to get a mortgage to buy a house, you know, where I was getting older and we were living in an apartment and we really wanted to buy a house. So um, the long story short is that I did get a job here in Florida as funeral director and... Um, you know, it lasted for 13 years. <laughs> Ouch, right, man? But, you know, it was cool. It was cool. You know, it was, here I am now. You know, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a homeowner. And all of a sudden, you know, I need to grow up, like, real fast. You know, the, the whole thing really needs to get serious because I have a young child in my life. And there was no way I was going to, you know, let any of my responsibilities slide. It's just... So I wound up, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, the health insurance was always in place and, you know, the money was being saved for the education and we lived in the neighborhood and she had a house and needed to live in and, you know what I mean, the bills paid, food on the table and, you know, all the clubs and stuff that kids do, they should, you know, but really was painful. Well, actually, you kind of saved my little bit in a um, some kind of structure, at least for me, it, 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 it has a lot, you know, until, until it got ridiculous. And then I was like, you know, Mariah had gotten older, she had moved out, she was on her own. And, um, I was getting really, really tired in the funeral service. So, um, I wound up, uh, on getting calls. You know, I started going to Memphis, you know, mm -hmm. and I started meeting people and doing the jams and. And uh, people started calling me to, to go on the road and uh, be their bass player. And I couldn't go. I couldn't uh, go. You know, and I started, to, I started to get depressed about it. Hmm. And, then, and then I was like, look, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, I turned down a gig in Bali. I turned down gigs in Europe. I turned down, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, and I was like, I really want to do some traveling with this uh, music thing and see where it takes me. Right. And, um, you know, so, uh, uh, Diana called, I got a gig, uh, Diana Greenleaf from Texas. Yeah. From Texas. Yeah. She called and she said to me, you know, I'm revamping the band and I'd like to give you an audition. I'll be honest with you. I'm looking at three guys. I got a local guy here in Texas 
and um, I have a festival up in Canada, and I'm auditioning a guy from the Carolinas, and uh, we're looking at you to possibly be in the and two, and if you'd like to audition, let me know. I said, well, yeah, I would love to audition. She goes, oh, great. I'm going to send you a ticket. We're off. We're going to Poland. Oh, my God. To audition. Yeah, that was my audition. Cool. So I, I went to Poland for four days, and I auditioned on a 75-minute set. Mamali Popolsku? What's that? Mamali Popolsku? Oh, what does that mean? That's, do you speak Polish, I believe? <laughs> no. I, I learned how to say thank you. I think that was pretty much about it. Uh, so I went to Poland for four days, and, uh, um, you know, I got the gig, which was, you know, nice, you know. I mean, I really prepared. I said to myself, I ain't going to Poland to not get this gig. Right. So, you know, and then she had a bunch of travel dates and, European stuff and Switzerland and Denmark and Norway and all this wonderful stuff that I wound up doing with her and that lasted a few years and that all came from sitting in a jam in Memphis man I was crazy I was at a jam at the, at the Daisy and uh, it was John Richardson's jam you know John Del Toro yeah Richardson. he's a real nice guy John Del Toro Richardson yep. yeah and I wound, I wound up uh, I wound up getting lucky enough to get a spot during the jam uh, as the baseball player next to John and you know the timing was right and uh, gave him my number and then uh, yeah and then he said uh, he said look we're going to be doing a uh, we're going to be doing a, uh, a showcase with uh, you know Bob Margolin and Bob Corator and Di Uner and a couple other people Kate Moss will um, be on guitar Mike Welsh do you want to be the bass player do I want to be the bass of course Wow. I said, yeah. So, so I got, and that that was really how I got introduced to all the uh, blues guys in Memphis and, and all that stuff. And that's where I, I kind of met everybody. You know? Okay, so let's talk about your time in Memphis and how the blues has changed for you from when you first listened to it to where it is today. Well, when I first started listening to the blues, I was listening to strictly acoustic blues. And then, you know, um, you know, I heard about the IBC, and I wanted to put together a band and do all kinds of blues music, and we wound up doing it all electric. And, and it was kind of cool, and it was kind of fun, and, and that's really how I got involved. And uh, we went to the IBCs and competed. Uh, International you know, Blues Challenge. Yeah, International Blues Challenge. And uh, Jay was the, uh, you know, Jay was the uh, president of the Blues Foundation, and it was great. It was just, you know, Tony Coulter, we had met him. He was the DJ on um, Sirius XM. And we started making all these friends, and everybody was like, man, you got to go to the Blues Music Awards. So we would go to the Blues Music Awards every year, and it was nice. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Barbara Newman had taken it over and you know our, our hosts of the Blues Music Awards went from like local guys that we know to last two years was uh, you know little Stevie Van Zant was the host and all these big television monitors and teleprompters and all this big stuff and it really really started to grow and it was sold out 
It's good. She was doing some really wonderful things with it. And I, I think it's really, really grown. I think more people are, are aware of it. And, um, and I think the reason that the blues is really as strong as it is, uh, is blues societies. People are, uh, there are more blue societies are around now than there were back then. Um, however, the demographic of, of the, the, the blues fan is, is, is older. It always you know, has been, don't you, you know, think? And, uh, I, I think it always has been, but, you know, when we got involved, you know, those people that were in their 50s, that were into it are now in their seventies and some of them are passing away or having some health issues. <laughs> and then, you know, um, and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, bring the blues to a younger audience is, is, is kind of a difficult thing for some reason. Why do you think that is? Well, I, you know, because it's, you know, that's my parents' music. I don't listen to that. I listen to this. You know, uh, and it could be Americana, it could be rock, it could be hip-hop. You know, I mean, we're a generation of music people. We grew up, you know, everybody knew the bands. You know, everybody knew the Stones and Zeppelin, the Who, the Beatles, you know. And when, and when bands came to town, you know, the whole community would go. And, and that was really the center of our lives, you know. And uh, you could take, you know, your graduating class of you know 1200 kids in my in my particular instance and, and divvy that up between you know 10 bands you know and everybody listened to you know a different band but it was all kind of like classic rock at the time for us anyway and um as you know the years go by and you know the internet and you know the the music sharing online and, and all that other kind of stuff. You know, my daughter had an, I, an iPod with a thousand songs, and it was a thousand songs by 999 different bands. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it became a really it became a world of singles. Is what you know, and um, you know, the whole record industry obviously collapsed from what it once was. To what it is now, yeah, you know, sure. It's, I mean, it's oh, we will never see it again. We'll never see it again because it's always it's constant turnover of the next best thing. Who's current? Who's in? Who's out? You know, I mean, you could watch, uh, uh, you know, a, a late night show. Uh, just, uh, you know, you know, you could watch Jimmy Kimmel or Colbert or any of these guys, you know, Saturday Night Live, any of these bit any of these shows that, that feature live music as a segment. And, uh, you know, it's it's a one and done for just about every band there is. You know? It's a band you never heard of. It's a band you never, ever heard of. It's probably the only time you're really ever going to see them. <laughs> yeah. Shit. You know? Yeah. It's, it's I mean, more... I, there's, an, there's exceptions to every rule. But, but, sure. Know, I mean, that's pretty much the norm. And uh, don't you, it's it's better in my in my opinion it's better sustaining well being a musician it's better su sustaining a career than actually trying to achieve stardom at this point because stardom is so fleeting and, and it's not necessarily the best thing 
that might happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I never tried to. I never, I never, I never got really. You know, you know, everybody talks about being rich and famous. I mean, I wouldn't mind being rich, but being famous just seems kind of like being a pain in the ass. <laughs> you know, um, I, you know, I, um, I, I do music because it fills my soul. Sure, you know? of course. It's, it's something that I'm, I, I'm meant to do. It's something that I need to do. With that being said, just because you love to do something doesn't mean you're entitled to make a living at it. Right. There's a big difference there. Yeah. Okay? You know, I love to play, I love to play the bass, but you know where I make most of my money? Playing guitar. It's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, I get out there, I do a single, I do solo gigs, I play... You know, maybe songs I wouldn't normally want to play, you know what I mean? Would I love to sure. have a, uh, you know, a nice big fat fan base that every time I go out, people, you know, I got hundreds of people buying, you know, $20 tickets. Would I love that? Sure, I would. But, you know, that's just not my reality. My reality is I need to make a living. Yeah. So I play acoustic guitar in restaurants and, and I fight the chatter and, uh, you know. You know, you try and squeak out a living however you can. <clears throat> you know, yeah. I find it to be better than doing funeral service. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know? Sure. So, you know, for me, for me, it, for me, it works. You know, for me, it works. I still get to be creative. And, um, you know, the way I do it is I just try and create a vibe I still do my blues music at these you know events and restaurants and stuff and you know it, it, it's done in a manner that I think is pleasing to someone's ear they don't necessarily have to know the song and just kind of providing background music or atmosphere you, you know you um you recently had a book release party and a book release would you like to talk about that and what the title of that book is and where people can find it? Sure. Well, you can find it uh, right at markteleska.com. The name of the book is uh, Love Music, Hate Cancer. And, um, you know, in 2017, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, I went through chemotherapy. And... Um, you know, the uh, chemotherapy, uh, you know, I didn't do, I, I did well with it because it worked, but it, it really, I had a struggle with it, you know, and it took me out of the game. I couldn't work for over a year. So this is not the first time I've been in quarantine. I sat home from February or March of 2017 till about November and uh, unable to work, unable to work. In which time I really... That's when I really started to uh, learn how to play the guitar. Um, in 2017, I really kind of, because, you know, I had access to the internet and, yeah. and guitar lessons and stuff like that. I needed something to do, you know, while I was in, uh, you know, while I was trying to get better and, and going for chemo treatments. So um, basically what I did is... Um, during that downtime, I said, well, I could, this is a, this is really, you know, this is a major life-changing experience. This is really an event that is going to shape my future and shape my life. So um, the thing was I made a decision that I was going to uh, learn how 
to play the guitar like a real musician rather than just, you know, strumming chords. Not that that isn't a real musician, but I was going to learn how to play fingerpick style chord melody stuff and, and get more involved in that. That's what I wanted to do for me, um, you know, in my own musicianship. Um, and I decided I was also going to write a book and tell my story because I always felt, um, that I was going to come through this thing. Um, okay. And on the other side of it, I was yeah. not going to let it take me down. There was just no way. I had too much, too much to live for. Um, you know, especially when I got the news <clears throat> that it was uh, everything stayed below my diaphragm, because this was um, a, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it's the kind of disease that goes through the lymphatic system. And it, my colon had collapsed, and that's mm. how we found it, because it was a tumor that attached to my colon. Normally, these tumors. Uh, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma will attach to a bone. And when they attach to a bone, another tumor forms, and then another one. And that's when you start to get, like, lumps in your groin and in your neck and under your arms. Mm. And you're, like, stage four when you start getting these lumps. But I had no... I had no symptoms like that. So I had the one tumor attached to my colon, and the whole disease didn't spread. It all stayed below my diaphragm. So when I got that news, I figured, well, I, can, I got this thing licked, you know, and I decided, you know, that I was going to do some things to, you know, to share, share my story with others. Did you have any and, symptoms? Like, w stupid question, you know, did you have any symptoms? And you're like, I don't feel good. And then you just went to the doctor. Yeah, I did. I, uh, of course, you know, I, I started having symptoms and I started dropping a lot of weight because my colon was getting crushed from this tumor so it wasn't really a symptom of having the cancer it was a symptom of my colon uh not performing Jesus. as well that's how that happened so i went for a cat scan and uh you know like at three o'clock in the afternoon and at 9 a.m the next morning my phone rings and they're like you got to get in here right away dude you're about 24 hours away from a full blockage and you need to have surgery, like, like today. Wow. Like, yeah, so it was this big emergency kind of thing, you know? Of course, they didn't tell me at the time. That they didn't tell me at the time that it was cancer, you know? They told me that my colon was collapsing, and they don't know why, but they knew that it needed to be fixed, you know? like ASAP. So, um, yeah, that's the way that whole thing went down. And like with pretty much no warning, you know, go, you go from not feeling good to having major surgery, you know, within 24 hours is like, holy moly, you know? So, so what, what, what kept your spirits up during this time? Music, man. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that what it's supposed to be? Music. Yeah. Yeah. music um you know uh you know i had to i had my wife you know she she really was uh, instrumental in, in me getting better and you know uh, she she was there for every every step of the way every step of the way and, and it was nice because you know even though you go through it alone and it's your disease and um you know you you need to you know, sleep with it, you need, you wake up with it, you know, she was there every step of the way, and, uh, 
kind of like went through it together hmm. in a way, you know, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so, um, you know, between, you know, the music and taking my mind off it, uh, delving into, you know, the writing of the book, you know, um, having my wife by my side at, at, you know, all times through this whole damn thing, you know, was like, um, you know, it was nice. I had those things to gravitate to, to tell, to take my mind off it. Sure. And I really believed, like I said, I just had this belief that, you know, the treatment I chose was going to work. You know, it just came right after Dave Shelley passed away. Oh my God. That's and right. When Dave, when, when Dave Shelley, you know, I mean, you know, this happened months after Dave Shelley passed away. I so, was, you know, the, the reality, the reality of Dave passed away, uh, you know, not just for me, but, you know, everybody was still on everybody's mind. Everybody was still blown away by it. Yeah. You know, and, and I know Dave, you know, he did the, the operation and then he decided to do the holistic thing, which is yeah. totally commendable. You know what I mean? And I totally get it. And uh, it, what the unfortunate reality is, it didn't work. Yeah. And David lasted for a year and then he passed away after yeah. After surgery, so that when it came time for me to make the decision about that, and I, you know, I, I I do a talk, you know, I do a lecture, now, you know, and and you know, it's a, it's a positive and and how to thrive after diagnosis. That's awesome, you know, one, man. You know, one of the first really need to do is. You need to believe that whatever treatment option you, you choose, whether it's chemo or radiation or something holistic, something experimental, you need that that's going to work. I mean, that's number one. That's paramount. That's the deal. You ask any cancer doctor in the world, the first thing they're going to say is you need to have a good attitude, good positive attitude about your treatment. You know, And, and I decided that's what I was going to do. Now, if it didn't work, well, you ain't got nothing to lose anyway. You know what I mean? So you might as well have a good... Uh, it's tough. It's not, it's not an easy thing to go through. But you can do it. You, you can get through it. And it I tell you what. I went to... Oh, you keep breaking up. You, you keep breaking up. Don't, don't move yeah. around so much. Yeah. <laughs> go on. Because, you know, 
I was eating too much McDonald's or I was eating too much fast or, you know, or maybe I wasn't working out or for whatever reason, you know, it really came to a point in my life saying, what can I do to help prevent this from ever coming back? And that was really, that's really the motivation is what can I do myself personally to prevent this from coming back? You know, if you're smoking cigarettes or vaping, cut it out immediately, you know, things like that. So, you know, that's what that's all about. All right, so let's talk a bit about uh, how you came to be the leader of the Monday night um, showcases at the world-famous Funky Biscuit in Florida. Ah, okay. Uh, well, uh, years ago, before I even went to, uh, before David even started doing the jam, I went to the Funky Biscuit to a jam, and um, I, I walked in with my bass, and there was, you know, 10 or 15 people there, and and there was a band there playing, and, uh, okay, cool. And then they played for, like, 40 minutes. I was like, all right. And then they took a break. And nobody was on stage. And they took, like, a half-hour break. And then they got up again, and then they started to play. And I'm like, well, this isn't much of a jam at all. Like, it, it almost, like, kind of, for me, it wasn't being taken seriously. And uh, I was working during the day, and, do my own thing and like you know I was a weekend warrior playing cover bands on the weekends or whatever I never gave it a second thought but then I heard that David uh, took it over and that was cool and, and I heard that things were going on pretty well but I never really uh, you know I never really went down there too much because you know I was just so busy with other stuff and then uh, it was Father's Day and I'm out with my family, and I pick up the, my phone rings, and I, and I pick up the phone, and it's Al. Who I don't really know. And he says, hey, man, are you interested in hosting, um, you know, the, the jam? David's been having some, you know, health issues, and he needs to take some time off. Hmm. He goes, and I've been just rotating guys, and you want to give it a shot? And I was like, yeah, and I'm thinking, man, you know. He must have gone through, you know, every guitar player in town. Nobody ever has a bass player to host a jam. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so, you know, I went there, and, and all I could think about was, you know, I had a disappointing time the time I went. I was going to make sure that didn't happen. So we had a house band, and, um, and I said, I'll, I'll do it. But can I use my own band to be the house band? Because I don't have any material prepared with these other guys. And they said, yeah, sure. And it was Alan Gibbs on guitar. And Anthony Lovati uh, was, was on drums. I showed up and, he, and Al said, but, you know, I'm going to ask you to use, uh, you know, Drew and um, Colin James, who was playing the Hammond. Um, I said, well, well, that's fine. I'll use those two guys. We'll, we'll just do our thing. And those guys can kind of sit in and jam along. We'll keep it bluesy and fun. So that's what we did. And then, uh, you know, I already knew a bunch of people in town. So I got off. Uh, and there was a bass player there. I think it might have even been like, like uh, Chuck Fiori or somebody. I don't know. And I, and I gave Chuck a spot to play bass. 
and then he did a song with somebody and then I saw somebody else and there was a singer and all night long I just kept I didn't really put up any bands or anything I just saw guys with, with instruments and we you know we, I had the sound man hook up three guitar amps and I just started rotating guys rotating guys and everybody was like wow this was so good everybody was happy everybody got a chance to play and then uh, he gave me another spot to do it again a month later. And then he gave me, you know, eventually he gave me, you know, to do it two weeks in a row and then a month in a row. And then and then it, it just really just kind of became my gig after a while. It was just sort of like, okay, you're running it the way we, we would like it to be run, so the gig is yours. It was never really officially, you know, it was never really officially said uh, that I'm the I'm the actual you know host of, of the night. It just sort of all happened, you know what I mean. And and that's really how that 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 became, which was wonderful because between uh, you know uh, me being a local musician in town here and me also going uh, to festivals and performing in some of them and going to Memphis twice a year, I had a really really big. Uh, network of musician friends and uh, who I knew when I was on friends, you know, in Facebook. And, um, you know, we were going out and we were promoting the biscuit and we were promoting the Monday Night Jam. And, um, you, know, you know, people started contacting me, you know, people from that live in Memphis and, and California and, and, and people from Europe and all these people that I just kind of know in the blues. And so I, I had the, I, you know, was in the position to bring in out of town people. And, and once that started happening and we started doing the featured artist, uh, you know, every week, um, you know, it really, you know, word just spread that, you know, there's just something happening on Monday nights at the Biscuits, kind of cool, it's free, um, very little competition at the time, it was very little competition. And, uh, you know, we were we were the only ones featuring somebody, a different person every week uh, at the time. So it was really kind of a unique kind of thing. And that how it came about because Robert Allen Gibbs wasn't able to do the gig anymore. How's he doing, by the so, way? He's doing great, man. He's doing great. In fact, I spoke with him last week. He's doing really good. Good. And... Uh, so, um, actually, it was Bobby Nathan's idea to give Bobby the credit of the idea because, I, you know, we were maybe thinking of replacing him. And Bobby Nathan said, you know, maybe you should just, you know, use somebody different every week. Yeah. And, and just like that, <clears throat> that's all he had to say. And I went, oh, what a great idea, and I just ran with it. So, you know, the very first guest that we ever had was Bobby Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> our very first very first Monday night guest that's funny and uh, yeah and uh, you know it was just uh, you know and uh, you know it was really Bobby's idea and then uh, you know I just decided to, you know to really move on it and, and I started you know getting my calendars out and making some calls and booking people of course you were one of them you know and and then I heard oh still this guy's coming into town that guy was going to come into town and I started looking at the festivals and I started reaching out, you know, got like, you know, March, who's, who's playing at Benita? Oh, let me see if I can grab a couple of guys that are on the festival and maybe they can hang, you know, or, or you know, and, you know, 
people started coming over from the uh, West Coast, and uh, you know, and, w and w once you start doing that, the audience starts to show up, and, and, and word spreads, and it really was a grassroots thing, and, and word of mouth really made it happen. I love uh, I love I love Monday nights over there. It's it's always packed and and yeah. you know. It is. It is. It is. It's going to be different, man. Coming back from this coronavirus, I don't know yeah. what's going to wind up happening. I don't know what's going to wind you up know? happening either. I mean, they were looking to open in May first. I don't think that's good. that's even feasible at this point. You know, it's it's the middle of April and. You know, people are still getting sick. People are dying. People are getting infected. Though we've seen the hit in some kind of plateau. Yeah. Uh, it's you know, it's still it, it's 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 at an enormous. It's, it's it's been enormously devastating, especially for the clubs, restaurants, musicians, people who work in, you know, um, restaurants and, and live entertainment places. The whole landscape is going to change. I don't know what the hell's going to happen. The scary—that's the scary part. We all don't know. That's that's why it's so scary. Well, we don't know, so you know we have to start thinking what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen next. So since we don't know, you know I can only do things w that are in my control. Yeah. So I started actually. I started a, a YouTube page. I don't know anything about. It. I'm just kind of like. I'm putting out free guitar lessons because, you know, I'm home and, and then I've just decided I'm going to learn a bunch more new material on guitar. Um, and I started, you know, now that I've been a guitar player for five or six years, you know, in fingerstyle guitar um, and blues guitar, I, I decided to share a bunch of stuff I know. And I put out these things called the tip of the day and I put them all out on there on YouTube. They're all like two to four minute videos on just, you know, turnarounds or simple songs or chord progressions or, you know, how to play something. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to stay relevant, you know. I'm trying to stay out there, I'm trying to keep my name out there. I do a show at noon, from noon to 1.30 every Saturday, uh, live on Facebook. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and... Uh, you know, I'm taking this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, learn new material, write some music, uh, and learn how to record some stuff, learn how to be more more uh, uh, into social media, and uh, because all this stuff takes time, and, yeah. and for some reason we don't have time when things are good, which right. is a good thing too. Right. But you know, all that growth for me, I just kind of like started spinning my wheels, and all the growth kind of stopped. Right. You know, but now I have an opportunity to grow again because I'm just stuck home. Right. You know, so I'm going to do something with that time. You know, and uh, so when I when, when things do return to whatever the new normal is going to be, I'm going to be hopefully armed with some new weapons. You know what I mean? Such as I'll know how to work my Instagram page, Facebook page, YouTube page. <laughs> right on, bro. You know, things like that. And I'm just going to do things that it's inspire me that's all hey mark uh why don't you plug your uh social media outlets sure well go to mark telesca that's m-a-r-k-t-e-l-e-s-c-a dot com or you can just google me mark telesca and all that stuff will show up 
you want to pick up a copy of my book, it's called Love Music, Hate Cancer, right on the homepage of my website. My new CD, Acoustic Blues, um, it is a 16-song CD. Uh, very cool, enjoyable, easy listening. It is also there. It's called Higher Vibrations. And, um, you know, you can follow me on Facebook, um, on uh, Twitter, on uh, Instagram, and I also have a, a brand new YouTube page that you can uh, follow as well. And I'm putting up videos, uh, just three or four videos called Tip of the Day, free guitar lessons out there, um, just to keep relevant and keep in the... Uh, keeping the uh, public's eye so right on pretty easy to find well thank yeah. you mark for uh being on my podcast um i love your brother thank and you, um you too we'll get through this and uh just keep on keeping on we'll see you on the other side and uh we'll make sure we do some playing again and i know you i know we had you booked for the funky biscuit and uh you were you got caught in the one of the cancellations. It's okay. And uh, but we'll make sure we get you back in. Sounds soon good, buddy. Sooner, sooner than later. All right, yeah. my friend. All right, brother. Love you much. You Thank too. Thank you. Bye.